0: hopeless they're locked up their life's wasted don't bother listening to their dreams rookie they'll babble among themselves but they can hardly speak hopeless don't take the time don't make an effort listen to them talk about gaining their freedom like they'll ever step foot out into the community that's not the case more than half of these criminals are here for serious crimes murder tends to be the case they're hopeless Better off having never been born. They can't be rehabilitated, so why try? It's a waste of time, waste of breath, and they're just a waste of space. Only thing they're good for is keeping my wallet fat. That, and taking each other out. It helps when the trash takes out the trash. Hopeless, their life's wasted, their lives torn. Why elevate their hopes, making them believe they have a future? Only to watch their hopes plummet from the sky. Don't encourage them to pursue college. That ain't for them. Most are fighting 25. Ain't no bright side to their story. They're hopeless. They're hopeless. They're hopeless. They're hopeless. They're hopeless. They're hopeless.
1: This is not an isolation, Voices of Youth. I am your host, Ronaldo Vieda. Today is our season finale. We have saved the best for last. Fasten your seatbelts. You do not want to miss a word. And thank you to all our listeners who have continued to tune in and listen to our journey. We have two special guests here today with us, both of whom will share their experiences and stories of their zealous advocacy work. We will be discussing the super predator myth, how it played out in other states and led to stories like Kaleem's and what we can do to advocate for youth sentence to J.L. Wap. The super predator myth was a false theory that initiated in the 1990s. This led people to believe that there would be a wave of young people having the capacity of extreme violence and that they would not respond to any forms of intervention, that there was no hope for them. This changed the landscape of the juvenile justice system, hence the beginning of JLWAP. JLWAP stands for juvenile life without the possibility of parole. It is a sentence of life in prison and we give it to children under the age of 18. The United States is the only country in the world that allows JLWAP. Let that sink in for a moment. Fortunately, there have been many reforms since the 90s where many states have banned JLWAP. I am one of the fortunate to have benefited from these reforms because of the passing of Proposition 57 in California. With me today is Halim Flowers. He is an artist, writer, and activist. He is the founder of Sato Communications. It is an honor to have you join us today. Halim. Can you please uh, tell us about yourself, your background, and what you're doing now and why you care about juvenile life without parole?
2: Wow, I care about juvenile life without parole just because I care about human beings, meaning that I just love humanity. I love myself, and I believe that we're all interconnected. My personal experience, or lived experience with this issue, is um, in the year of 1997, being falsely accused of being an accomplice uh, to a murder, for which i was not present uh, during the commission of it but nonetheless i was charged under the accomplice liability doctrine of felony murder which means you don't have to have an intent you have to just be present for the commission of a felony and um i went to trial i was convicted was sentenced to two indeterminate life sentences uh which is different from life without parole but the length of it is really sometimes just that de facto uh life sentence and um but I was given two indeterminate life sentences. I was convicted when I was 17, and um, and I was fighting for my humanity um, and fighting for my my liberties for 22 years, um, filing motions and briefs and starting my own publishing company and writing books and letters and just doing everything within my ability to just to fight for my humanity and the rest- restoration of my civil liberties but also um, those who were similarly uh, situated as myself um, from the District of Columbia for 22 years until I was released uh, three years ago.
1: Thank you, um, yeah, And I, I can also relate to that. Um, I was arrested here at 17 in Orange County, California uh, for an attempted murder. Um, I was a direct file under Prop 21. Um, I was facing life plus seven. Um four and a half years in the juvenile justice system. And it was, um, it was surreal to be that close to the problem. I was with other youth, some as young as 14, who were receiving lengthy sentences being sent to prison. Um, And it was a hopeless place. We were all destitute. Um, We had no hope. There was no resources, no programs. Um, And to say the least, um, it's, it's, it's crazy to think how all of this stemmed from this super predator myth and this rhetoric that um, was responsible for the wave of legislation that ultimately affected black and brown youth across our nation. Um, we are also happy to have Kristen Rome with us today. She is the co-executive director of Louisiana Center for Children's Rights. Kristen, can uh, you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your background, where you started and why you decided to go into the sign of work and what you're doing now and why you care about juvenile life without parole?
3: Thank you. Thank you both. I mean, I think I can start off. I, I can give you all of the history, but the the long of the short is I, I started doing this work because I cared. You know, I, I was meeting brilliant beautiful amazing men like the two of you who were just condemned to die in prison because many of them um were just a a mistake for lack of a better word that they had had made but but to be more specific how I came into it I, I'm Kristen Rome I'm born and raised in New Orleans um Ended up going away for college and um, went to Spelman College in Atlanta. After I graduated from Spelman College, came to back to New Orleans and I went to Loyola University for um, law school. When I graduated from law school, I knew I wanted to go into criminal defense work, but I wasn't—I um, hadn't fully defined what that meant for me, and so um, I, I started doing a little bit of. Um, Work with incarcerated men, and and I started to realize that kind of what I wanted to do was help to get people out of prison, and in an effort to completely just stop the cycle, hopefully at some point. So, um, in two thousand twelve, um, I believe Miller versus Alabama came out came down in June. So around July or August of two thousand twelve, I was at Angola Prison, um, which is our state penitentiary in Louisiana, and at that time. Um, attorneys could visit on Fridays, which is family visit day. And so I had kind of figured out that if I wanted to work with men who were in prison in an effort to get them out of prison, I needed to meet their families. These were the people who were supporting them and making sure that they were able to get out. And so Fridays were my visit day. And so one day I was visiting someone on a Friday and he said, "I, I want you to meet someone. And a man named Sean Williams came up to me and he said, have you heard of Miller versus Alabama? I was about a year out of law school, but the way the bar exam and licensing works, I'd only been licensed for about, at that point, eight or nine months. And so he came up to me, he said, are you familiar with Miller versus Alabama? I said, absolutely not. And he was like, well, it's, it's the law that's going to get us all, all of us juvenile lifers out of prison. I was like, oh, wow, that's what's up. And so he was like, do you want to represent me? And I said, uh, no, I'm, I'm fresh out of law school. You don't even want me to represent you. And so um, we talked about it for a while. He left and he came back. He was working concession that day. He came back. He brought me an order of French fries. And he said, this is your retainer. I want you to represent me. And so, um, you know, we started meeting. We worked together. I reached out to another formerly incarcerated genius Um attorney. He's in law school now. Calvin Duncan, um, who was wrongfully incarcerated for many years at Angola. Calvin helped me figure out how to write um, a motion to correct illegal sentence based on Miller. I filed on behalf of Sean Williams. I filed the first motion of its kind in Orleans Parish. We litigated. We had a resentencing hearing. Sean was ultimately resentenced to life with parole, ultimately went before the parole board and was released. And now he works with us at LCCR as our outreach coordinator. So really the way I came into this work was just really divinely aligned. It was never anything I intended to do. Um, I just knew I wanted to get people out of prison. And so it made sense. It was aligned all of my life. I've worked with young people. I've worked with teenagers. I love working with teenagers because I see the beauty and resilience and um, creativity in young people. And so, uh, yeah, I always credit Sean with with bringing me into this work. And so for a long time in private practice, um, I did that work. And then 2018, LCCR started their team or our team rather to um, represent all the people in the state who were currently serving life without parole sentences since they were children, as well as the children across the state who are currently facing life without parole sentences. I joined LCCR as a staff attorney um, and last year became the legal representation director. And um, as of about four weeks ago, was appointed by our board um, as the new co-executive director um, of LCCR. So yeah, that's that's where I am now and, and what brought me to the work.
1: That's uh, an amazing story. Um, I love the fact that he gave you some french fries as your retainer.
3: He didn't even know, but that was it. That was the, I love some french fries. <laughs>
1: so
3: he had it right.
1: It's <laughs> amazing. Halim. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, um, did you spend time in solitary? And for how long, um, how did you keep yourself together? And what, you know what, what kept you going through that time?
2: I stayed in solitary confinement from 97 to, no, 98 to 2000. So, like, I was, like, from the age of 17 to 19, um, a guy tried to, tried to, um, assault me, and I defended myself, and I almost killed him. And, um, so I, I stayed in solitary confinement for, for two years for that, and for me, um, how I how I compose myself is 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 through the literature and the arts um I read a lot of books I wrote a lot of music I wrote a lot of poetry I um, haven't had the opportunity to have good mentors who were going through solitary confinement around me some of these guys had been in jail longer than I had been alive at that time and they had been in solitary confinement in various state and federal uh institutions so they just had that, that that frame of reference with that inhumane experience, because my first time going through it, um, it was very traumatic, but just feeding off of their strength and their experience, and them um, giving me the literature that I needed to read. Um, I'll never forget the guy who gave me uh, Solid Air Brother by George Jackson, and just reading um, all that he went through in the California state prison system, coming to jail as a 18-year-old and developing himself into a, an international world-renowned author and scholar um, in his own respect, you know, from being inside a prison and how he dealt with solitary confinement in San Quentin and, and Solidaid and all of the different institutions that they ping-ponged him around. So for me, uh, literature, reading about Nelson Mandela, 18 years on Robben Island, um, what Asada Shakur went through when she was initially incarcerated, them— keeping her inside of men's prisons, um, what Angela Davis went through. Just, just you know, just reading about the elders and the ancestors and, and just, like, um, putting their experience and comparing contrast analysis with my experience, and I felt like um, that I was going through something that was far more uh, doable and far more humane um, than what they went through, especially when I read Victor Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, just helped me to put things in a proper context and perspective in as though it didn't kill my hope, you know, to to want to stay uh, present in the present moment and still uh, dream about a future that was worth enjoying. So it was definitely the literature and the arts and, and of course, mentorship for me. And my mother loved me. You know, my mother, she, she, she never gave up on me. So I had someone, no matter what I went through, um, that didn't say but showed Consistently, um, that they that they love me.
1: Shout out! Shout out to to our moms. Um,
2: shout out to the moms. I, I,
1: yeah, I you know when I was in solitary confinement, um, that really was the the only way to to not go insane. Essentially, was to occupy your mind, and for me it was also books, it was writing music, uh, creative writing, anything that I could do to get my mind. Off of the fact that i was in a box and i couldn't get out um victor frankel a mass search for meaning was a pivotal book for me as well um i, st- I still read it till this day i reread it every year um, it was truly um it, it just put into perspective you know what, what we're going through and 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 the suffering and the pain um that it's not in vain right um, we're now out here and we're advocating um We're trying to change that narrative, that stigma around what it means to be formally incarcerated, what it means to be a juvenile offender. Um, And it truly is amazing how, you know, some of the brightest minds that I've met were inside, inside of prison, inside of of a jail. And the amount of creativity that flourishes from um, being put in solitary confinement. You know, they try to break us. They put us there to beat us down and to assume their control over us. But, you know, a lot of us find ways to defy that through our creativity, Um, just sheer mind power. And it's amazing. Um, Kristen, can, can you give us some legal and human rights context for the audience who may not be as well versed about juvenile life without parole, um, the, the juvenile justice system and the use of solitary confinement?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, when we spe- specifically talk about juvenile life without parole, um, we, we, we start with Roper, which came down in 2005. That's Roper versus uh, Simmons, which was a U.S. Supreme Court case in 2005, which prohibited the execution of children. In 2005, when that uh, Supreme Court decision came down, America was one of only two known nations that were still using execution as a form of punishment for children in 2005. And so Roper came down and made it um, unconstitutional, deemed the execution of children a violation of the Eighth Amendment, a cruel and unusual punishment. So after Roper passed, it took another five years. And in 2010, um, Graham v. Florida came down from the U.S. Supreme Court, which then barred barred a life without parole sentence for any child that was convicted of any crime except homicide. Um, And so that did away with life without parole for for lots of young people, but there are a few things, and Haleem raised a couple of the things that came up with Graham that just weren't helpful to children that one, If you didn't get a life without parole sentence but you got what is commonly called numbers, you got a bunch of numbers, not letters, you got stacked on sentences, then you were de facto serving a life without parole sentence because no one lives for 125 years. Or if you got three 30-year sentences all to run consecutive and it's 90 years, well, you got a life without parole sentence, essentially, So um, that was one issue with Graham. The other issue that um, I think continues to come up, which Halim also raised, is that with Graham, um, it it said that a child who has not killed anyone nor intended to kill anyone should not be sentenced to life without parole. But the way criminal laws are written across the state is that people can be criminally liable for homicides that they didn't actually commit, but they were physically present for. And so you have people who were convicted of homicide offenses under the theory of principle, and they didn't intend to or kill anyone, but they were still serving life without parole sentences, and Graham could not provide them with a the remedy. So that was Graham in 2010. And then in 2012, Miller versus Alabama came down, which established a mandatory life without parole sentence as unconstitutional. Um, for, for those children who had committed homicide offenses. So it's important to distinguish that it, it, it outlawed a mandatory life without parole sentence. So essentially what the U.S. Supreme Court said was, you can sentence these children to die in prison. You just got to have a hearing first. And at that hearing, you got to look in a crystal ball, read your tea leaves, do whatever you're going to do to figure out whether or not this child is capable of change which those of us who have all been children before, just int- or, or have children, shout out to the mamas, uh, we intuitively know children change. It's just a fact. Um, and so Miller came down in 2012. Well, the pushback on Miller was whether or not it was retroactive. Could it apply to the folks that were already in prison serving life without parole sentences for murders that were committed while those individuals were still children. And so in 2016, the United States Supreme Court looked at a case called Montgomery versus Louisiana. Well, in 2016, the opinion came down that said, yes, Miller is retroactive and allowed states to decide how to remedy um, this this issue of many, many, many children being incarcerated um, on mandatory and automatic life sentence, life without parole sentences, Um, or sentences to die in prison since they were children for homicide offenses. Solitary confinement is often used as a protective measure for children because these prisons are not designed for children. They're not. These are adults in these adult prisons. Right. And so oftentimes children are placed in solitary confinement to protect them because the prison doesn't have a process or um, any means of focusing on children, focusing on their rehabilitation as well as protecting them. And so one thing that prisons often do is say, put them in solitary confinement just so we can make sure that they're safe and no one's messing with them. What we know, what you, what, what the data shows us and what you all actually know from experience is that what solitary confinement does is actually further traumatizes children. So when you think about a child being held in a 12 by eight foot cell um, space Oftentimes with um, windows where sunlight is not really coming in well, it it has devastating impacts on children. So the United Nations has continuously called um, for the end of the use of solitary confinement, um, particularly as it relates to children. The United States continues to use various states continue to use um, solitary confinement. Um, In Louisiana, what I can tell you is that this past legislative session, LCCR had a huge win with the support of one of our congresspeople, Royce Duplessis. And we were able to pass legislation that bars the use of solitary confinement in juvenile secure care facilities, except in the instances where children pose an immediate threat of physical harm to themselves or others. Um, and even then, there are very clear parameters about how long the child can be held in solitary confinement. Their parents must be made aware immediately. Um, they, they're, they're a bunch of bench, um, there are a bunch of things that must be done to make sure it's done well. Obviously, it has to be implemented and followed like every other law. Um, but we specifically made sure to put in the legislation that we propose that solitary confinement cannot be used as a protective means. It does not protect children from harm. It only further harms them.
1: No, that's facts. Um, I, I, I really dislike when um, the system says that it's for our own protection, when really it's just uh, they don't have well, they don't have the means nor the capacity to be able to give. The rehabilitative programs and support that youth need. So the easiest response is just throw him in solitary so that he's safe. Um, We've seen a lot of changes across the country when it comes to juvenile life without parole over the past 10 to 15 years. And Halim, I just, you know, I wanted to ask you, what did that look like in DC? And how did experiencing life as someone doing juvenile life without parole, um, how did that impact you to push for change?
2: Um, I'm one of them rebellious type uh, Negroes. Um, probably in the time of slavery, I probably would have had many whips on my back and limbs missing. Um, you know, because I took my pre-SATs when I was 11, and I was fortunate to take courses at Howard University when I was 11. So I don't have the the narrative of, of someone who went to prison illiterate and taught myself how to read and write. Or rather, I was always academically gifted. I just the school curriculum just didn't resonate with me. And I knew that um and I still know that it's 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 not um situated to educe. So but me going, going into prison, um, and being rebellious and being, uh, coming up in Washington, D.C. during a time when it was the, had the highest murder rate per capita, uh, when you deal with so much fatality around you as a youth, just to survive, you develop a certain type of grit. And, um, so when a judge said life and life, I just looked at him as like a clown in a road, um, and I never, I never accepted it. I never just accepted that I was going to do life. So for me, um, what it looked like was getting back into being a nerd and the geek that I was. I was always the one who liked to read comic books and do algebraic expressions. And, but when I turned 12 and went to junior high school, um, being smart wasn't celebrated. What was celebrated in my community was being violent and and having all these material uh, clothes and cars. So me being a youth who was very impressionable at the age of 12, I sacrificed my nerd and geekiness to be a thug and a a cool guy. And when I went to prison and, and, and everything was taken from me and I saw that all I had was my mother, I just tapped back into just being who I was. And that was someone who was... Extremely intelligent and intellectual, which is the difference between being intellectual and intelligent, because intellectual is the book smarts and intelligent is the ability to be able to make decisions with the books that you read. And I had the best of both worlds and I had that grit to fight, you know, so the first riot that I participated in was to go to the law library. They wasn't allowing the juveniles to go to the law library at D.C. jail. And I fought and I burnt the tear down for that. And I would go to the law library every week. And I, when I started to read about these different writs and habeas, corpus, I said, okay, I will have to learn Latin. And I taught myself Latin to understand the law. So for me, um, going into the what they call forensic analysis. I'm, I'm, I'm a poet, so I go into the—I study the beginning of words and things. So a lot of people don't know, even in this juvenile life reform community— Uh, One of the first Supreme Court cases and the U.S. Supreme Court cases was Kent versus United States. And it was dealing with the District of Columbia. And this was in the 1960s. Right. Um, In the 1966, it was dealing with the government in the the District of Columbia uh, charging children as adults. So the U.S. Supreme Court put in safeguards. For children not to be expedited into the adult court system. But what happened in 1968, you had the King rides and the U.S. Senate and U.S. House of Representatives uh, criminal committee, criminal law committees, um got together, and all of this is on record in the case called Bland versus United States. But they got together and they came up with this way to circumvent the safeguards that was put in place with Kent versus United States to be able to waive the, um, the incorrigible children into uh, adult court. And this is when they came up with the Title 16-2301, uh, uh, Section C.A. In, in 1970. So in our particular situation in the District of Columbia, which is completely different from California, Louisiana, any other state in America, we are not a state we are a federal entity so we don't get the safeguards of a 2254 to be able to challenge our egregious legal violations to federal court on a criminal level so we have to we have to develop very strategic ways to prove that our local remedies are inadequate and ineffective and um and for me I just felt like I had something worth fighting for it was my life and um finally in 2016 the local DC legislators got together and decided to, to come up with this uh, Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act. And what's so idiotic about uh, people in, in, in public office is that they came up with this law as a result of Roper, Graham, Miller, um, and being completely unaware of Kent versus United States um, in their legislative reasoning. But they they were going to make the law. Prospective, right and when i got wind of this um i emailed from prison all of the city council members and the mayor and told them my story and the story of the dc uh code juvenile offenders and three city councilmen wrote me back and said that they didn't even they were not even where it was children from the dc that were incarcerated since the 70s 80s and 90s right so they they didn't know that when they were drafting this law that it had to even be applied retroactive because they had moved into the city through gentrification. So they had no roots in the cities. The new law, it was passed, and this is how God worked. The law was officially enacted on April 4th, 2017. April 4th is the same day of the King riots uh, when King was assassinated in 1968. So, um, so that's what we were able to do. We were able to get that legislated. though. If you came in under the age of 18 in the district of Columbia, uh, after serving 20 years, you can come back and petition for resentencing and release. Um, we got that amended the next year down to 15 years served. And then last year, I believe, uh, we got the law amended the as though, the second look act that if you came in under the age of 25. Um, if you serve 15 years, you can petition for resentencing and release. So we want to eventually now um, get it to where though, like everybody record gets response once they complete probation. Um, and also, uh, the where it's though, it's any age, and it's just not in, in, in uh, respect to those under the age of 25 or 18. Every human being who serves at least 10 years uh, should get a, a look because we feel like 10 years in a... Inhumane uh, prison legal system is 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 more than enough.
1: Uh, thank you, Haleem. Um It's amazing to to hear just your sheer tenacity and willingness to to not give up, and and to be rebellious if need be to advocate for yourself, to have access. Um, Kristen, you had kind of touched upon uh, some of the work in Louisiana, um, and I just wanted to ask. Um, you know, what, what's the landscape like in Louisiana? Um, are there any other jurisdictions that you guys use as reference? And, you know, when it, when it comes to, to uh, eliminating juvenile life without parole, um, what have been some of the strategies that have been most effective in your state?
3: Thank you. So first, I just want to um, uplift what Haleem said about, like, essentially this concept of Sankofa, like this concept of going back to get what is ours to like project ourselves into the future and how important understanding the history of where we are is to how we determine our solutions. And even in this conversation, like obviously the history starts way before 1970, you know what I'm saying? And so in in thinking of solutions, we gotta think about like, why was this system even created? Why Why were police even created? Why was the criminal legal system even created? Why was the juvenile system even created? And then when we when we know those reasons that helps us get towards solutions and then also just raising that, you know, my role as an attorney and what I try to impress upon attorneys that um, work in our office and what and what we try to impress upon everybody at LCCR is that, you know, we say we're client centered for a reason. We're not we're not leading any of this. We're supporting this. People, people like. Alim got himself out of prison. You know, Sean got himself out of prison. And so we support in the ways that we can support. But ultimately, um, you know, we, we want to support folks who, who are able. We want folks like you leading this work, telling us how to, how to make these changes. And so there, there are a few things um, we've been able to do in, in Louisiana that have been helpful. I spoke about the solitary confinement bill. Um, in 2017, we passed the legislation that um, implement or has allowed us to start implementing um, the Montgomery versus Louisiana and Miller versus um, Alabama decisions. And so, through that work, um, we passed legislation that now allows. And let me preface it by saying we are nowhere near. The law is nowhere near where it needs to be. Children can receive for homicide offenses can receive a life without parole sentence after a hearing or they can receive life with parole um, after a hearing and life with parole looks like them having to serve 25 years and complete a number of other requirements before they can go before the parole board. The reason why it has been, that particular law has been impactful in Louisiana is because in Louisiana we had a large population and we continue to have a larger than should be population of men serving life without parole sentences, and they've served well over 25 years. And so we saw this legislation, as we continue to push and move to abolish JLWAP completely, we saw it as an opportunity to get a bunch of folks out of prison, and it, and it has allowed us to do that. Um, so we continue to work on abolishing JLWAP, and, and um, we continue to take our clients to with us to court and make sure that we are advocating for them to be resentenced to life with parole and then representing them at the parole hearing, um, where it's, um, where, where they want us to represent them at the parole hearings. Um, I want to like give some specific numbers about the, the national landscape. So before Miller, 20, and again, Miller versus Alabama is the decision that barred mandatory life without parole sentences for children who um, were convicted of homicide offenses. So before Miller, 29 jurisdictions, that was 28 states and the federal government, had mandatory life without parole sentencing schemes for juveniles who committed homicide offenses. So that means if a child was convicted, of a homicide in those 28 states in the federal government, they automatically received a life without parole sentence. That was before Miller. Now, currently, um, there are 26 jurisdictions, 25 states in the federal government who bar the penalty of life without parole entirely for children. Children cannot receive life without parole sentences in those jurisdictions. And for those of us who, um, who study the law, we know that the way we determine whether the way we as a as a collective in this country and the legal system, the way we determine whether or not a sentence is cruel and unusual and um, a violation of the Eighth Amendment is by evolving standards of decency. And so if we see that, like, people are moving away from this, then collectively, the United States Supreme Court says well, we shouldn't be doing this. It's probably cruel and unusual. We've seen that exact type of reasoning in Atkins versus Virginia, which is the case that um, barred execution for those individuals who are intellectually disabled. We saw it with Roper. And so it, it's it, we are hopeful that at some point um, the courts will recognize that truly there is a trajectory in the country to stop using this sentence. And so those outlier states such as Louisiana um, Will be barred from using that that sentence.
1: Thank you. Um, it, I mean, you guys both tirelessly work um, and advocate for change. And we've talked about some of the legal aspects, and we've talked about um, the incarceration portion of it. Um, but I wanted to ask, um, what have you guys seen in terms of reentry services that are supportive and effective, uh, specifically for those um, who were sentenced to? Juvenile Life Without Parole. Um.
2: Well, Washington, D.C. is, it's a tale of two cities. Um, We don't have our own halfway house, which is weird. So people have to go to all the way to Baltimore, which is like an hour away. And that presents uh, challenges um, for people trying to find employment and housing initially upon their release um, in the District of Columbia. Um, but yet and still, I I will bet my house and car on it that uh, Washington, D.C. is probably the best place in the country to be released from prison. Um, I've known people who personally, uh, who were juvenile lifers, and now they work for the D.C. Correctional Information Council, and they... Uh, Tour federal prisons to monitor the care of incarcerated people from from the district. So, people who have government jobs, people who work with politicians, and um, you know, and when I go to other states, you know, Florida, Alabama, California, California is a little progressive. Certain cities, certain cities are not, but I don't see people presented the opportunities that. Uh, Returning citizens as they are identified in in the District of Columbia uh, does. So, um, Washington, D.C., has a lot of occupation and housing and education opportunities. Um, Even we recently got it the way as though we can still vote while we're in prison, Um, which only Maine and another state, I think New Hampshire, does that. So, Washington, D.C., it's not perfect, like nothing probably in life isn't perfect, but I believe that Washington, D.C. Um, is the best place to return from. A lot of amazing nonprofit organizations um, that do the work of to help people re-enter with clothing and food and things of that nature. So, um, and then being a D.C. citizen, you get to go to University of District Columbia free of charge. So you get access to higher education, food, employment, um, transportation stipends for all these different things, and I think um, you'll see that the District of Columbia will produce some of the uh, most uh, successful returning citizens, uh, in particular juvenile lifers uh, now, because so many of us are getting out. We have like our own little community now. So
1: thanks, Salim. Um, and yeah, just just like touching on reentry, um, you know, I wanted to ask you what was the most difficult aspect of, of your reentry and and you know being in solitary has long lasting effects did any of those resurface or were any of those triggered during your reentry process
2: well i think like for me the most difficult process what i would say is figuring out what felt like intergenerational experience or playbook um how to be like a loving husband and a father and a neighbor. These things, like, I didn't see in my home, you know, and, like, and I don't have, like, a lot of frame of references of of people that I grew up with. Um, Because a lot of people, like, encourage me to, like, soil your royal oats when you get out. Don't rush and get married. And that just, that didn't work for me. So I I, I wanted to get married. I got married. I had a child. I bought a house. Um, And it's just, like, I just don't see, like, a culture in place that's, like, real, like, loving about family uh, structure. And um, people talk about intergenerational wealth and things of this nature, but they don't really have a family um, to build it through. So for me, I'm a man of God. You know, I'm not very religious. Very spiritual, though. Very intuitive and, like, What's been most challenging for me is like um, really, really like wanting to be the best partner and father and son and like just to be the most loving person in a genuine way. Um, So for me, like that's that was like getting money was easy. I, I read the Wall Street Journal every day and I think so much of like what happens is that people look at If you're successful financially, especially as an entrepreneur, that's what the bulk of reentry is about to them. It's like, how are you going to make money? How are you going to be able to provide for yourself? That part for me was easy. Um, But how do you how do you be like, how do you love yourself as an entrepreneur? How do you balance your love for entrepreneurship and wanting to provide for your family with spending genuine time with your mother who was there for you all the time and your wife and your child um those are the things i don't see successful role models for a lot and um and those are the things like been the most i believe the most challenging probably need therapy too though that's something that i'm open to now like i've never done therapy i used to be avidly against it but now like i really want to do couples therapy and like individual therapy like
1: that's beautiful Thank you. Thank you, Haleem. I I just wanted to open it back up to you, Kristen, if you wanted to give any final thoughts.
3: I mean, Haleem said it all. But I think one really important thing that he raises in in Louisiana, we have one main reentry program for um, so-called juvenile lifers. Um, Really, we got one main reentry program for everybody. But, you know, this particular one um, focuses heavily on um, juvenile lifers, so-called juvenile lifers, partially because they are the most like it's it's happening. It's actively happening that people are coming home from that. Um, there's another one that's starting, but it'll deal with folks who are who have specifically been um, convicted through nine unanimous juries. But anyway, I think what Halim raised—that's really important—is that oftentimes re- reentry programs only focus on like a person's financial well-being, right? And so, like he was saying, inter- intergenerational wealth. Well, there's no focus on intergenerational health whether that is your physical health because you've been in prison for 30 years, eating trash, not moving around enough, Um, also your mental health because you've been in prison and you've been in solitary confinement for a number of years and you've had to see and experience things that no one should have to experience or see, Um, as well as your spiritual health, right? Because I know like in Louisiana, if you're gonna do any type of spiritual work in a prison, in the prisons in Louisiana, it's either gonna be Islamic or Christian. There's no other options for um, community spirituality, at least not um, in an organized way. And so, um, you know, from like a purely, like this is what the law requires in the box type of way, what we see when we go to parole hearings is that the parole hearing is, the parole board is very concerned with an individual's ability to get get employment to have somewhere stable to live, um, and whether or not they have family support. Those are like the main three things that are important to them. And and for those of us at LCCR representing people before parole boards, it's normally pretty easy for us to line up those things. It's pretty easy to line up a job. It's pretty easy, kind of, to figure out where they will live, even if it means funneling them through this um, reentry program that I referenced. Um, and Normally, at least um, you have one or two family members that can provide them with support. What Halim raised is important. I think there is a gap in creating reentry programs that are holistic and really focus on the person's just well being in life. What we know about the adolescent brain, so if we go back to when so called juvenile lifers are first incarcerated, they're teenagers. And what we know about the the brain is that um, the prefrontal cortex, which is what manages, and I'm not a scientist, but I know a little bit about this, so y'all uh, bear with me as I try to explain it. But the prefrontal cortex is where we get our reason from, is where we can, you know, appreciate the risks, the benefits and risks, um, where we can slow down and say, uh, like, I could punch you in the face right now, but if I punch you in the face, This is what's going to happen if I punch him in the face. It's that, you know, ability for us to kind of breathe for a second. And so... Teenagers, um, when you are a teen, that's the last part of your brain to form. Your prefrontal cortex is the last part of your brain to form. What has already formed by the time you're a teenager is that emotional part of your brain, the part of your brain that tells you, "Oh yeah, take the risk. Oh yeah, you might get a you might get a reward for this. Oh yeah, you're gonna look cool if you do this." That that immediate reward, kind of emotional, just act on impulse kind of thing, that's working. The gas. The gas is working when you're a teenager. What is not working is the break. And so when we incarcerate people, but then, I'm sorry, let me back up. When we allow the brain to develop as it's supposed to develop, and when children are getting the love Haleem kept talking about love. When children are getting the love and nurturing that they need, what happens is there's a pruning process that kind of defines and makes the brain so beautiful and tells the brain how to respond and tells the brain you're OK, you're protected, shows you who you are, the godliness within you. And so if we put a child in a anybody that's ever been in a prison, I mean, I don't know how else to describe it other than just like. The energy in every prison that I've gone into is just so dark, the, the, the overall energy. There are beautiful people that you can sit and have a conversation and their specific energy is not dark. But the energy of the facility, the place, there's a dark energy in that place. In Louisiana, you know, the, the story goes, and I believe this story, that Louisiana State Penitentiary is called Angola because it was a former slave plantation. So you know what kind of energy pulsating through that environment, and so you take a child whose prefrontal cortex has not been developed and whose brain has not had the opportunity to prune itself and to make the necessary connections to connect emotion to action in a way that is healthy, and you put them in this environment, and then their brain permanently turns. It, it, it starts to it's, your brain is still going to develop. Nothing's going to stop it from developing. It's just not going to develop under these circumstances that can cause it to be more rigid because the adolescent brain is still plastic. And so when a child commits a harm, especially a harm like a murder, a homicide, taking someone else's life, that child is really, really, really in crisis. And that is a beautiful opportunity to help that child, to help their brain to start to rehabilitate and and react, respond and be nurtured in a way that can benefit not only the child, but their family, their community, everybody. And instead, what we do is we put them in very harmful, dangerous environments and let their brains develop there where they become more rigid. And so then when the reentry does happen, then it is really, really, really important now as adults to figure out, How do I respond in a good way? How do I communicate with other people? When I'm angry, how do I not like yell at my wife or yell at my mother or yell at my child? But how do I like disagree in a way? And I'm not saying that everyone like yells, but I'm just, you know, saying to be able to understand how to make these communications. And it's a lot harder to repair and fix when you're an adult. And so, one way that one way that we know it works is through like love through experiencing love through sharing love through brotherhood through um through having these opportunities to share with other brothers who have been through similar circumstances so that um you can heal from some of the trauma that you've experienced and certainly therapy talk therapy um you know spiritual connections and so these are not these are not things that are generally baked into reentry programs but I would love to see, and you know, maybe Helene will create it. But I would love to see a reentry program that speaks to spiritual well-being, that speaks to mental um, mental well-being, and also speaks to like community and brotherhood, and in a real way, in a real way that really addresses um, the needs to make our communities um, to, to to reconnect our communities.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, we definitely are lacking uh, reentry services that have a continuity of care, that have the holistic elements, that provide the mental health. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's something that um, prompted me to create my own nonprofit, and it's the reason why I do this work as well, um, to be able to establish that continuity of care and to fill those gaps because I experienced it myself as well when I came home. Um, and a lot of people fall through the cracks, right, when they come home because of the lack of mental health or the, because of the lack of support, the lack of community, the lack of peer-to-peer uh, um, you know, solidarity and, and being able to have the conversations um, of the trauma we experienced. Um, I just wanted to uh, turn it back over to Halim, um, let you share any closing thoughts.
2: For me, a closing thought is um I'm so thankful anyone who who has opportunity to uh come across this recording um we're all so blessed you know to be alive and I think anything that we we do uh with this work with this information that's been presented today um because we're talking about a very gross injustice that's happening to a particular um Vulnerable uh, population of our human family, which is children. And yes, in some cases, children are doing or committing horrible, inhumane um, offenses upon humanity. And but nonetheless, they are they are our children. And it takes a ch- it takes a village to raise a child. It also takes a village to fail one. And um. When our children uh, do commit these horrible acts, because now this is not just an inner city uh, thug thing. We have children from the upper economic stratifications who are going to churches and malls and schools and killing people indiscriminately um, in football numbers. And. But yet and still, they are deserving of grace. Um, in just mercy, as Brian Stevenson would say. So I just hope that anyone that has the opportunity, myself first and foremost included, to engage with this recording um, to understand whatever work that we do internally and externally to, uh, to make this experience that we call life and society more more humane, more loving, more equitable, uh, that we, we do it from a space of love and um, and grace, and not anger, and, and hatred, and fear. Um, because if we do, then the work, um, as Frederick Nietzsche would say, you know, let those who seek out to kill monsters make sure they don't become one in the process. So, you know, and all in all, I just believe in love, and I believe that we're going to win. So, uh, with that, um, I'm very enthusiastic um, to do the work, and just thank everyone for being present and for, for um, seeing that I was worthy of being heard and seen.
1: Thank you, Haleem. Um, it's truly inspiring and, and just amazing to have both of you on today. Um, and, you know, love Trump's all right. Love will prevail.
4: My name is Jenny Lutz. I'm an attorney with the Center for Children's Law and Policy, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit working to help protect the rights and the safety of young people. I'm also the director of one of our projects, which is called Stop Solitary for Kids. We work around the country to end the use of solitary confinement for all young people through resources, through training, and through other projects like this podcast. There's often a fundamental misunderstanding of what solitary confinement actually looks like for young people. That's partly because it goes by other neutral sounding names like room confinement, seclusion, or separation. But it's also because most people don't think that this can be happening to young people, that we can be putting kids in solitary confinement or that if it is happening, it's not like what we imagine solitary confinement is for adults. But the truth is that solitary confinement is happening to young people, it's happening across the country, and it's just as harmful as what we imagine happens for adults. Solitary confinement is putting children in cells smaller than the size of a parking space with no human contact for days, weeks, or even months. There's usually just a bed and a thin mattress, nothing else in the cell or on the cell walls, There might be a tiny opening for light to come in, and food usually comes through a small slot-like opening in the door. We've even heard about kids being forced to use the bathroom in plastic bags if there isn't a metal toilet in the solitary cell. And this happens to one in three young people in jails or prisons. That's tens and thousands of young people a year. Solitary confinement also causes profound harm, especially to young people or adolescents. It increases their risk of suicide and trauma. We know that half of suicides of young people inside jails or prisons happen in solitary confinement. Most young people in solitary don't get services, mental health treatment, drug and alcohol counseling, or even education that they're legally entitled to. We also know that solitary confinement affects kids of color, kids struggling with mental wellness, and LGBTQI plus more than others. On top of this, we know that solitary confinement doesn't work. The most common reason that jails and prisons give for using solitary is that some kids must be separated and locked down to keep everyone else safe or to teach them a lesson. This idea is part of a larger narrative, a false narrative, that young people who get caught up in the system, who are usually black and brown kids, Are somehow more dangerous or less worthy of compassion. So, the goal of Stop Solitary for Kids is to take apart destructive practices like solitary, not only through laws and policies and court orders, but also by calling out the culture of incarceration, punishment, and racism that we see in the system around us and in the use of solitary confinement. And fortunately, there have been victories across the country where places have ended the use of solitary confinement for young people. It's possible. That means pushing jails, prisons, and judges to see that there are better ways. Those better ways are strategies like treating kids as human beings with potential, building relationships with young people, training staff to solve problems with their words and not physical force, getting mental health staff and therapists involved and giving young people in custody meaningful activities to do and skills that make future opportunities like jobs or pursuing their education real opportunities for them. Many of these approaches also aren't just coming from advocates like Stop Solitary for Kids and Our Partners. Jails, prisons, and staff who work there are also saying, hey, there are other approaches that work better and that actually do make everyone safer. There are also young people who are speaking out, who've been in solitary confinement, and who can describe what would have worked better instead for them than solitary confinement. Our goal in this podcast series is to lift up the voices, expertise, and the vision of young people. We can't make these changes without them. We'd like to thank Arnold Ventures and the Lingala Foundation for their generous support, Sergio Cuevas and RP, their powerful grounding pieces at the beginning of our episodes, Varden Than for music, Mario Wizzo Fernandez for editing, and the key content creators of the podcast series, Sway Pineda and our host, Ron Avieda.
1: Thank you for joining us this season of Not in Isolation. We are so grateful for everyone who contributed their time to creating this podcast and to you, our listeners. This will be our last episode for season one, and we look forward to season two in 2023. Make sure you are subscribed to Not in Isolation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you can be the first to know about the launch of season two. While the season of our podcast is over, the work never stops. October marks Youth Justice Awareness Month. And we are celebrating and honoring all the hard work of directly impacted individuals, community leaders, advocates, defenders, coalition builders, legislative champions, judicial officials, and allies who continue to fight for change for young people across the country. We see you and are standing with you in the fight in October and beyond. Signing off for season one, I am your host, La Lovillera, catch you in 2023.